Alright guys, welcome back to another episode of the Precision Rifle Channel podcast. I am here with my friend Chris Way. You may remember him. He was on the show last year. And we are super excited to have him back this year. Chris, how are you, sir? I'm doing good, Travis. Awesome, awesome. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. So, the NRL 2020 season officially kicked off just over a week ago, roughly. And it started off at Rifles Only down in Kingsville, Texas. Uh, uh, Chris and I were both at the match. And this was Chris's first ever national win, first place. So, Chris, I want to congratulate you on behalf of everybody. Uh, Congratulations, sir. That's huge. Thank you. Thank you. So... Last year when we talked, we were, you know, going over everything that you were doing to get in the sport, some of your goals, um, what matches you were attending, so on and so forth. And I wanted to get you back on the show today because obviously a a lot has changed um, from your season last year to your performance this year. Um, It's just been, it seems like watching it, it's been a lot of different changes, not only in your shooting capabilities, but equipment, gear, um, outlook, the whole nine yards. Yeah. Yeah, it has. It's been a heck of a year. Um, shit, man, it'd probably be 10 or 12 episodes to go through all the details, but, but I'm happy <laughs> to talk about all of it. I'm, I'm, pr- I'm more or less a transparent kind of guy. Yeah. I mean, I want to know for, from a competitor's perspective i mean last year was your first year your first match this year you're a champion what did you do what changed how did this come about um is there some kind of secret voodoo i mean fill us in because everybody wants to know um how you progressed so fast in a very short amount of time well sure i I don't think in in most things there really aren't secrets so i'm happy to talk about the things that i did but let's let's rewind to the beginning of last year when as a as a non-rifle competitor you know i approached you and said hey i'm going to try to shoot a lot uh, I, I knew essentially nothing about uh competitive rifle shooting other than i did a match and thought it was pretty cool realized that i sucked at it and because of circumstances I had enough spare time where I was able to dedicate time to, to compete. Right. Um, I've been an athlete my whole life and, uh, you know, I would consider myself an expert in a, in a, in a few fields. So I've, and being 46, uh, I've had chapters in my life where I've had to learn something and become an expert relatively quickly. And so that was my goal is to learn what it would take to become proficient as a rifle competitor in a year and uh, take knowledge I had and try to apply it. So the real ingredient there is time. And that's not what people want to hear. And I think that's pretty evident when you look on the media and everything is, you know, lose weight fast, get strong fast. Um, You know, pretty much everything fast. Uh, I don't think you can really take the time out of the equation, but you can be smart about it. 
and and really that's what happened over the year. Okay, so elaborate on that. I mean, you're talking about you know needing to have or dedicate that time, but use it wisely. So how did you use it, you know, to the best of your advantage? Well, at first, you know, I did. You don't know what you don't know. So in the, in other circles, sometimes they call it darkness within darkness. You right. just you, you just need to do something for a little while. And as a beginner, that's kind of hard to accept. And, and it's, that's a struggle that, that I think there's no way around. And so first, all I had to do is just start competing. So uh, last year, I did the opener and the rifles only. Uh, I did a number of matches right off the bat. And I just went with an open mind to, uh, to see what they were like. And what I realized very quickly is that uh, from the venue in Colorado that I was introduced to the NRL, to Arizona, to Rifles Only, to South Dakota, to Washington, all of the venues were different. And as a result, the positions and the stages were different. And that's not something that I entirely expected. And although after a while I had a number of matches under my belt, I think the people that, who were competing at a single spot every year but not traveling to other states have a hard time grappling with those differences. Were, I didn't have a bias yet, so I wasn't able to say, well, good at this. Every match was kind of a kick in the nuts. Um, and every time I tried to practice what I learned at the last match, the next match offered something different. Right. And, and so every time I tried to prepare uh, reflectively, it, it, I, I wasn't able to see the results because, um, you know, Jacob's match, there's a, a lot of rounds and a short time hack with mag changes. So I thought, okay, great. I'm going to shoot faster and practice mag changes. And then you go to South Dakota and it's snowy and there's long shots and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's about spotting impacts when you miss or spotting. And then, okay, gosh, yeah, I'm going to do this. Then you go to Washington and it's something totally different. So, um, at that point, I just, I realized that it was just a matter of getting to matches and seeing the differences and, and, and recording them. So I took a, a fairly extensive journal and I compared and contrasted venues and stages to, to, try to make a general list of skills that would apply at all ranges rather than chasing a particular type of stage or not. That's interesting. So based on your analytics of the matches that you shot last year, what would you say that that universal skill set was? I, I would, I would have to say that um, there, there's four main positions. There's prone, low kneeling, high kneeling, and, and standing. Uh, and I've heard of tests. Uh, you know, I'm not going to... Anyway, anyway, there's there's other people who learn how to shoot and practice and obviously have, have a lot of experience with rifles. That And some of them do like six-inch tests, you know, all the way up to whatever. But in general, I found that those positions are the positions that you're going to be shooting on. And 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 so you need to you need to you need to train in those four positions, not just prone or sitting at a bench, um, and that the the carryover to different props is um, 
is pretty good. You know, if you're shooting off of a two inch pipe kneeling, it's not much different than shooting off of, you know, a chair kneeling or a tripod. If you just throw your bag over the tripod at that height, it, it's more of a height uh, relationship than the item that you're actually shooting off of. Right. And so, uh, I, instead of, um, focusing on more minutiae that you might see, I, I felt like if my if my shooting was consistent in those positions, and and not only consistent in the position, but between one position and another. So if if I shot paper and I and I train on now, I spend most of my time training on paper. If I take a shot prone and then a shot low kneeling and a shot high kneeling and a shot standing, I want that group to look the same as if I had shot all of them from any one of those positions. And that's something that really surprised me. And um, it relates back to um, scouring the internet and hearing and reading and, and uh, people being taught about natural point of aim. But it's hard to read or hear something. And it's very uh, easy for somebody to say, yeah, well, no shit. But in practice, uh, you can dry fire and you can practice your natural point of aim a bit, but until you actually shoot that, you don't really see the effects of natural point of aim on point of impacts. And to me, that was fascinating. So, so I spent an awful lot of time developing methods to train a consistent shooting process that would deliver groups that were um, transferable across positions, if that makes sense. Okay, so yeah, that definitely makes sense, but... Again, this being a podcast, I, I wish we had some way to show some visuals here. But if you can kind of verbally break down what a standard practice session for you would be from any one of the positions. I mean, are you shooting at 100 yards, 200, 500, 1,000 yards on paper? What do you, you know, when you're shooting at the paper, what is your setup and what are, what are the drills that you're going through or the motions that you're going through? to get the results that you want on that paper? Sure. Um, it, that developed over trying things that I had read about. I, you know, I'm, I'm one of those guys that I've probably listened to every shooting podcast and every episode that's been out in the last three years. Uh, I listened to it all last year and took notes. You know, I looked at a lot of websites and then uh, very early on, I started reaching out to the top shooters and asking them, you know, whether they liked it or not. And some of them were friendly and some of them made it clear that they've got other things to do. Um, but I developed a practice uh, based on some of the tips that, that they had, but also just things that I noticed were inconsistent with my shooting. And, and, and I believe in everything I do, I believe in, in averages. So, um, you know, let's say you run a 10-minute mile, but you want to run a three-hour marathon you know, it's not going to happen, right. right? You're not, it's, you know, this isn't a Disney movie. You're not going to wake up tomorrow and run faster than a 10 minute mile. If that's your average, uh, sometimes, you know, you have a good day and you, you might run a nine forty, but you know, you're not, you're not running faster than that. But if, if you focus on your averages, those averages will move in the direction you push them. It takes time. So, one of the things that I noticed is that um, 
you know, when you, when you look and, and people are going to roll their eyes, but to me, it was one of those moments, those aha moments. And intellectually, I could have told you the answer, but in practice, I think it's different than just the intellectual understanding. But when you look through a reticle, a target is a certain number of mils, right? It doesn't matter what the distance is. So I was shooting on paper and, and I noticed that, you know, the target that I was shooting at in terms of the, the size and mils, um, you know, was different than when I got a sight picture at a match. And, and obviously that translates to, you know, the one MOA, two MOA, three MOA size targets. Right. But when you're shooting on paper, uh, oftentimes the paper at a hundred, right, is, 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 is much larger than the steel that you're shooting at. And so you might be shooting at a, but, but let's just say for instance, you were shooting, um, on a three inch circle at a hundred yards, right? Okay. So you got a three MOA target, which is one of the larger size targets you might shoot at a match, but right. nonetheless, and you say, okay, well, I'm going to shoot 10 rounds from these 10 positions. And you look at your group and, and you've got three shots on the left side of the target and three shots on the right side of the target and three shots on the top um, and one on the bottom. You know, you say, oh, great. You know, I, I hit it. The, the problem is, um, you know, if it was a two MOA target, you probably only hit half of them. And if there was wind, then, you know, one or two of those would be off the target. And I, and I noticed that in each position, I had a trend, um, left or right or up or down, that was consistent with that position. And that, uh, you know, if I was going to have a chance of increasing my hit ratio, I, I was going to have to bring that group towards the center and make it consistent between positions. And to me, that was one of those moments where, where I kind of realized, all right, I'm going to have to start putting in the work to do this because... You know, even a hundred percent hit ratio on a on a three MOA target um, isn't going to translate at a match, right? And I noticed that online, a lot of the arguments, rather than saying, you know, all right, well, let's bring that group in, let's let's start making our fundamentals better, they would say, all right, well, you know, if you're shooting at twenty eight hundred feet per second, why don't you load at thirty one hundred feet per second? And those wind calls, you know, you might get lucky, <laughs> and. Um, <laughs> So, so, so I started to break down those fundamentals on paper so that my group size would, would, um, not be, you know, under stress within a, within a three MOA circle rather, um, you know, it'd be, it's, I'm not talking about bench rest size shooting, but, and, and I'm not saying that like if I sat down and I shot a group, I couldn't shoot a tight group cause I could, but under stress, under a simulated, um, yeah, under the, under the position, clock. right under the clock and an unstable shooting pl- uh, position that you might have uh, at a match, you know, shooting around three MOA. And, and that just wasn't um, getting the results I wanted. I realized like, you know, that that by itself would change everything. So uh, I started shooting a lot on paper and I started focusing on the fundamentals that would bring uh, my my recoil management and my sight picture and my process to, to reducing the, the MOA size. And I started asking people, you know, what, if you did this, what, what, what size is an acceptable group size? And nobody, you know, I asked Jake, he said, well, I don't do that. I asked John, no, I don't do that. Tyler, I don't, nobody was doing it, but I was still asking them hypothetically. 
right. you know, what's an acceptable standard that once you achieve that standard, it's probably good enough. And then you should work on other things. And, and I didn't get a solid answer, but I did bring my um, under stress group size to, to just about one MOA under under time and stress that was like equivalent to a match uh, setting from three MOA. And that, that took that's huge a lot of dedicated practice. And to me that that's very, very significant. So if you can, if you can keep a group, um, and I would, I would say under two MOA in, in a stressful time hack under positions that, you know, are match equivalent. Um, and you can get three or four or five shots, uh, sub two MOA. It's probably start you know, time to start looking at, at other things that you could add to your training um, to, because there are other skills involved. But but for right. me, that, that was probably the biggest uh, note that I had from the months of looking at matches um, and probably what I still practice the most. That, that's what I was doing today. You know, today I went out and shot 60 rounds and I was doing my drills on paper at 100, um, just practicing fundamentals making sure that uh, what I was doing was still consistent because some of it isn't quite subconscious for me. So a lot of that is conscious practice. So out of curiosity, I mean, practicing the fundamentals, you see, you know, some of the top shooters in our sport, that's what they continuously preach is to practice your fundamentals. But for you personally, when you went from three MOA, uh, three MOA down to the one MOA. Fundamentally, what did you change? Was it, you know, the, the positioning of how you held your rifle? Was it, you know, a 90 degree trigger pull? Was it, you know, your cheek wall height, your scope distance? I mean, what was it that you changed from last year to this year? Fundamentally. Well, uh, a lot, a lot has changed. One thing that I do is I video, uh, because in, in some sports, uh, video analysis is really important. So I video every training shot that I do. I just put my phone there, and every time I do a drill, you know, it might be four shots or five shots. I'll, I'll take a video and I'll cut it down to when the shot timer goes off, and I'll, you know, analyze it, angles, height, so on and so forth. So I get pretty geeked out on it, but, but. Um, before, before I answer the question, which I will, I, I think that um, when you just say, you know, last year to this year, uh, it's hard because my progression uh, increased. And al although I kind of had a, a suboptimal performance at the finale, uh, I tracked my shooting and I tracked my hit ratio and performance. But the thing is that I, that I started off doing a lot of NRLs and then I did uh, several PRS. And then I switched over to the competition dynamic circuit. So what you don't see is that the second half of 2020 is heavy in other um, leagues. Right. And that my performance continued to climb through those. So, you know, I went from, you know, 2030 in the NRL to, to teens in the PRS to, you know, single digits at the competition dynamics. Um, so as I tracked my hit rate and the, shooting fundamentals that I was tracking. It wasn't, it wasn't just to perform at NRL is to be a good, good rifleman. And so to, to test it on different leagues at different styles of matches to me is really important. Oh, um, absolutely. 
because I don't want to just be good at a KYL rack. I want to be good in any situation that would need a bolt gun. And and that's something that slows down your progress, let's say in the National Rifle League style shooting, but it, it will apply uh, back down the road. It just, it just takes a little bit longer. So, so I did have, um, to me, a pretty significant uh, performance increase as the year went on. The finale just identified and reinforced a couple of things that I, I don't practice as much. And the level of competition um, at those, there, there are so many good shooters that, that if, if you struggle, um, they're, you know, they're going to eat your lunch. <laughs> so, uh, I think that, that it, a, a shows how good all the shooters are out there and B shows that, you know, if, if there's a stage that is designed around your weakness, um, you know, there's a, you can make a pretty big movement up or down, um, and for me, it was it was a, a series of bad stages that I just couldn't recover from. So, and you know, th- there was other things too, but but really, that ate my lunch, and and it reinforced my need to train some other things. So after the finale, I just you know went neck deep in training again. I made a little Facebook group that I called the test group. I said, hey, if anybody wants to join me in analyzing performance. Some people said they did. So we've been geeking out on the targets that I use and the drills that I do at 100 and um, tracking results that way. But now I'll back up to your question about what, what are the fundamentals. I mean, the fundamentals of marksmanship, if you listen to podcasts like Philip Vallejo talks about them quite a bit. Um, Tyler Hughes talks about them quite a bit. And you know, there, there, it's a consistent list of elements that, that prior shooters have identified that have a big influence on your ability to shoot consistently. So you need to, you need to work on all of them is, is the answer. Uh, you can't neglect any, any, any one of them, but you have to identify which one of them is causing you problems. And that's something that is going to be unique to each person. So if I say, well, you need to do this trigger pull, Maybe you don't, right? You might have a cheek weld issue or uh, uh, where are you putting the buttstock, you know, on your clavicle or your shoulder, your face. Or And for me, it was taking the shot, looking at where it hit the paper, looking at the video, seeing if I could identify um, something about that position that was different than the video of a position where the shot was good. And oftentimes, if I put it on slow motion and slowed it down to 10, 10% or something like that, the way the r- rifle recoiled into me um, revealed something about that position. And that, okay. that's how I approached it. And that, that reduced the number of shots that I needed to take. You know, Because I didn't want to go out to the range with 100 rounds, start having problems, and then thinking I could fix it by just shooting more faster. Right. So what I did is I shot less, but I analyzed each shot. So... Your, your approach is a very scientific approach, which is phenomenal because, you know, when athletes perform in other sports, uh, golf, race car driving, whatever it is, they analyze football. They analyze every single movement that they do in order to achieve their goal, whatever that is, uh, less strokes or a shorter time frame or, or whatnot. And you being able to recognize 
that, you know, one of the biggest issues you had with your positional was recoil management. Um, that's huge, right? Because a lot of competitors, like you said, they'll try to fix the problem by just continuing to shoot without actually figuring out why it's happening. And you figured out that reason why. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. At first, I'd go out to the grasslands here, which is about 45 minutes away, and set up targets at a distance. And I'd shoot 200 rounds, missing all the targets, and just continue to shoot, thinking that at some point something great was going to happen. But um, but that's not life, right? Not, right. You're not going to wake up and something great's not going to happen tomorrow. And I'm, I'm not a pessimistic kind of guy, but that's this isn't just, Disney. That's just, right. That, that, that's, that's just reality, right? We're not going to wake up. A dog's not going to win the election, right? right. Um, it would be cute, but it's not going to happen. So what what we need to do is think of the elements. I mean, it, it really is science, so breaking it down. I, I mean, and I have a graduate degree in natural science, so it, it makes sense to me to analyze things. But also, as an athlete, I think that you've got a conscious practice where you develop a training plan consciously. You see, these are the skills that I want to work on. And the ones that you're not good at, you need to think about. You're awkward. You go through the motions in a, in a bizarre way because your mind's heavily involved with it. But once you've done that enough, um, it turns into a subconscious reaction. And so that thought process has to be heavy at first and then it has right. to make that transition. Um, and that transition you, you really only identify when it, when it gets sped up. Uh, and, and so I'm heavy on the conscious part of the practice because I'm pretty new to this. So, I mean, it, it, it's, Interesting that, that you say that because when you practice subconsciously like that and it becomes second habit, you know, do you find yourself, once it's become second habit, do you find yourself starting to work on speed or other aspects? What Once you have that solid base for that position and you're comfortable, where do you, where's the next evolution? So... For me, the training, the the training is is kind of a, a developing that process, going through slowly, and you you print a group, and it's consistent. So at that point, you need to start adding stress, and that's going to be a time thing. And during that, um, instead of thinking about the fundamentals, you might think about your shot process. Like, you know, I'm going to breathe. Here's my anchor for the for for me personally. Like, I'll take a breath. I'll find, you know, build my position. I'll anchor myself. I call it anchoring myself to the rifle. And then I'll uh, as, develop a sight picture. As soon as the target's in my sight picture, I'll close my bolt. I'll exhale. I'll make a last wind call. And then I'll do a trigger press. And when I do my trigger press, I think about something unrelated to shooting. And um, that's kind of the process that I've developed. And that, that has come from lots and lots of conscious evolutions of that. But then I'll just try to haul ass. And, and I, won't, I won't try to go from, you know, if, if, I, if I film myself doing a simulated stage and it takes me two minutes, I'm not going to try to go to 60 seconds. I'll try to do it at night. Okay. And then I'll watch the video and I'll say, like, um, the first thing I'll do on a video is say, like, what, what are the – I'm not even looking at the shooting. All I'm doing is rewinding and fast forwarding between when I started and when I built my position. Like, how, what did I do that was too slow to get into position? Because that you can speed up 
not worry about your shooting, right? And that tends to be where the speed has come from for me is, oh man, I took four steps and then I got on my knee and I put the rifle down and then I got up and I switched knee and I moved the bag and I did this and it's like, oh man, you know, that's 30 seconds of... Uh, wasted time. Of wasted time and, and, and it seems fast and it, and, it, and it is fast, but it's just completely unnecessary. And that, that actually... Um, the the spark for that came at, at um, Jake's match in Washington. There was a run the ridge stage, and oh, yeah. being, being my personality, I I, I uh, challenged some of the better shooters to to run it for time, and everybody drove along and uh, and ran the stage. And at the end, it was actually pretty pretty surprising. At, at the end, all the times were pretty close, and all the scores were pretty close. Uh, Phil Vallejo hit the most shots, so he he won the challenge, and whatever the pot was. But what what I thought was really interesting was at the end of however many stages it was, um, you know, we had run across the hill and sh- shot seven stages, something like that. Uh, the times were pretty close, and I thought, shit, man, you know, <laughs> I'm fast, like I can run. Right. And, and so I asked John, like John is a really fast shooter like what the hell and he's like dude you'd haul ass to a stage and then you'd be there for like 45 seconds whereas they would haul ass to the stage and within 15 seconds they're running to the next one so at the end of seven stages you know i'm like two minutes more stage building time right and that two minutes of stage building time made up for the two minutes of running and we all kind of came in more or less around the similar times, if, although the, you know they were better shooters, so their hit points were um, higher. And I thought, God, you know, how come it takes me forty-five seconds to to build a position and break a shot? And that's when I was told about the build and break drill, and uh, that was a predecessor to some of the drills that I do now. But but the build and break drill is essentially, you know, pick a target. This could be done dry firing, and you know, stand back six or seven feet with all your shit in your hands and um, set a timer and time yourself from the beep to when you break your shot. Right? Don't try to go fast. Just do it however you would. And then look at that. And if that's 40 seconds, now set a, you know, set a timer and try to do it in 35. Right. Once you get it in 35, try to do it in 30. And, and try to you know get to the point where you're dry firing, building a position and breaking that shot. Uh, on you know something you know essentially as, as fast as you can do it well so right? it's all about efficiency yeah and, and that kind of yeah that, that was definitely one of those mom, aha moments where i thought you know what like i wasn't timing out on a lot of stages but man i sure could use more time for other things and right. and um that that's when that was adopted into the process is is you know, when it dawned on me that, you know, really building the position shouldn't take very long. And I'm sure there's faster people than me. I'm sure there's slower people than me. But I think that, that people hear it or they see it or they read it and they think, I don't need to work on that. And my answer to that is maybe you do and, and maybe you don't, but, but try it. You know, do a couple and tell me that if you had a five position stage, you know, with one or two shots from each position, would you time out or not? And if, if you're building a position, 
and break in a shot in 30 or 40 seconds, you're going to time out. Of course. That's just simple math. And so thinking about a stage that way, if it, if it says this stage is four positions, and you say, oh, shit, my follow-up shots, let's say they're five seconds, but my first shot, let's say, is 30 seconds. We're talking about 35 seconds of position. Wow, that's unacceptable. Yeah, you'll never make it. Right. But if it's 15 and 5, now it's 20 seconds of position. Now I've got, uh, you know, three positions a minute. And now you're talking about, well, if you do things well, you're not going to time out. So there, there's definitely a time budget. And that's something that has to be, uh, that it's irresponsible as a competitor to not understand uh, that aspect of a stage. And, and I absolutely didn't. But talking to John and Jake and, Philip at that match, it, it became very clear that if, if you just ran, rattled off a random stage to me, now the first thing I'm going to do is divide the positions up so that I've got a budget in my mind. Okay. And then I'm going to say, okay, well, you know, each shot, let's say each shot is five seconds, except for the first one. Now I've got a time budget of how much time you know, do I have as flex time. And, you know, I mean, if you're on a barricade and you're moving from one position on a barricade to the other, it's not going to take as much time as from when you first start, you know, seven feet away from the barricade. Right. But I, I don't factor that. And I just say, look, you know, whatever the position is, I know what my two shot time is going to be and three shot time or, or you know, it's going to take me this long to build and break and stay within my fundamental um, group size that, that I've been training towards, whatever, whatever that is. Um, okay. no, and, that's, and I think that's really important because, you know, if, if somebody comes up to a stage and they say like, oh, look, you know, if it's one position, okay, but you're still, like at Jacob's match is a really good example. Yeah, it's one position, but you have 50, 15 shots in, 15, in, in 60 seconds. So if your first shot's at 30 seconds, you, you've got 30 seconds to make 14 shots now. That's really fast shooting. It is. It's tough. <laughs> right? So if you know, so if you want a better budget on being able to make good trigger pulls and not letting your nerves get ahead of you, that thirty seconds is gonna pay you dividends if you can get it to fifteen. Because Absolutely. now taking fourteen shots in forty five seconds is a lot more easy to swallow. No, it's, it's very cool uh, that you've broken it down that way. I'm friends with a lot of the top uh, competitive pistol shooters in the world, and they spend hours upon hours doing everything they can to shave, you know, hundreds of a second off of their actions or their movements to engage targets. And although they're working on a lot, uh, a lot faster time frames than what we do in Precision Rifle, the formula or, or the mental aspect of that is is the same. So if you can figure out a way to become more efficient in your movements, it gives you more time to be efficient with your shooting. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, that is, that's an element of this game that you can't ignore if, if you want to be competitive. And so, it sounds easy, but you have to continuously practice it. And I know the top guys do. But I think that that's something that earlier shooters neglect a lot. And in the test group, what I've seen was some, there's some very beginners in there 
um, they just didn't know that they didn't, they, they had no idea. Right. They're breaking a shot in three minutes, <laughs> right? They're, they're, or they're shooting, you know, four shots in five, right. three minutes, four minutes. And you just don't know that it's important to think about that. But before all the speed, you have to have the fundamentals, right? Otherwise, you're just going to miss really fast. Yeah, otherwise you're you're a loose cannon, right? Mm-hmm. So when we talk about efficiency and speed, you know, the next obvious question is gear. You know, what gear are you using when you approach a stage? Because if you're going up there with two or three bags, a tripod, and whatever other stuff that you're carrying, you can't be efficient. All of that's going to slow you down. Yeah, I don't. I'm maybe not the guy to ask about that because I don't have a ton of gear. But um, you know, I, I want to just say that the answer is you, you need what you need to make the shot within your training, and you'll know what gear you need if you train. And if you don't train, um, you won't know what gear you need, so you're going to fumble and, and mumble and stuff like that. If if you go up to a stage with six or seven bags, you, you didn't train. That, right. I guess that's and although you know that's just me making a assumption that that's the assumption I'm going to lie on because if, if, if you train, you'll know the, the minimum amount of gear that you're going to need to be able to produce the results that you want. So, so for example, um, I got a little shit at rifles only when I did the barricade stage on film with a bag and a tripod as a rear support and in training on that type of shooting, I don't use tripod as a rear rear support, but I have practiced using tripod as a rear support. Uh, because it's not a skill that I had practiced before that. And um, to me, it was important to try to clean it. And I thought, man, if I get up there and I'm anxious and that the, it was, it, you know, the time was generous and I felt pretty confident, but I felt like, you know, this is, this is what I need. So I carried up a, a bag and a tripod as a rear support. No, I remember um, because I was there. I was the one that was giving you a hard time about it. <laughs> and and it's um it's one of those things of I, I thought I had a better I, I got fourteen out of fifteen um, but uh, you know it was, it was me saying this is this is what I'm gonna need to clean it now you still yank the shot um, but I, I you know I got fourteen which is better than you know I probably would have got thirteen had I not used the tripod which which would have been a decent score. Um, but it's just a decision that I went with. And, and, uh, you know, I don't, I don't don't know what else to say, but I've got one of those big troust, um, uh, they call it the pillow kind of things. Um, and, and what I, what I did note in my, my, my match notes is that I borrowed one almost every match for things like rooftops. And so I got one. And so I'll carry that thing around and I'll use it on, on stages. I used it at rifles only on the rooftop because as the angle produces a big gap. And although you probably could have got a game changer to work uh, the way it was set up this time, I felt like having one of those big pillows is, is useful on one or two stages of match. Otherwise a game changer pretty much does it all. I've seen some matches now with ports that are very narrow or short. Right. And, um, so the plates and the thin bags that people are using on those uh, seem useful for those particular kind of stages. But 
you know, I think that as mass directors come up with ways to challenge people, a lot of gear comes out to help them in those. And hopefully they don't just get um, kind of silly. I would hope that ideally you could do a stage or you could do a match with one bag and a tripod. A tripod is a valuable tool. And, and, and I think it forcing somebody to not use a tripod when it, it's a piece of gear that you could carry around. Um, and, it, and if you say it's not practical, I guess my answer would be that, that um, I carried a tripod at the Sniper Adventure Challenge and, and got first place last year. So if, you know, we, I carried around 60 miles. Right. <laughs> and uh, I think that its usefulness in the field and the burden that it creates in terms of weight, um, the value outcompetes that. So being useful with a tripod, I think, is, is um, up there. And then a, a game changer. Nice, nice. Yeah. So where do you see yourself next? What match are you at? What are you doing? What are your plans for the rest of the season? I mean, now that you've won one match, I mean, I know you're ultra competitive, so you're going into every match trying to win. But where are you going to be at? What are your plans? Well, my uh, the next match I'm signed up for is Gem State. And I think today I was going to try to get into Phil's match nice. up in, in Cody. Um, my schedule is going to change up a little bit in May, so I might not be shooting as much after May uh, for, for competitions. Or at least I won't know uh, what weekends will be free. But, but I'm going to try to get those three down. My goal for this year was to place top 20. And so that, that's going to still be my goal. Um, you know, I think that the, uh, different venues, you know, I've, I've never been to the gem state place and I've never been to Wyoming, uh, oh, right, I've been, never, never been to Phillips match. So I think it, it's kind of weird to assume you're going to go in to a new place with new stages and that you'll have in, encountered it or, or have the arsenal of experience to be able to to be as competitive as people who have put in that time. But I'd like to think that I'm now competitive. And to me, top 20 is competitive. Oh, absolutely. So, um, so that, that's my goal going into it. And, and the way I plan to train is what I've been doing, you know, shooting at a hundred and working on my wind calls, um, working on my positions, my speed, try to keep my accuracy node in the MOA under stress and um you know ha have fun and try to try to learn what i can from the matches so that when i come back here and train uh, you know i'll feel like i'm i'm becoming a better better rifle shooter <laughs> you know like that, I mean, <laughs> for that's, sure that's cool. i mean i think that it's going to be a lifelong process and thinking about those elements and and trying to um develop an understanding appreciation for all the nuances that are involved um it's exciting because it kind of you know it's like those video games that people play that you can never win you know i feel like that that's kind of like shooting you know it, it, it's going to always be changing there's always going to be something where you're going to have to use your knowledge base to to do something you've never done before right and to me that that's really exciting well and that's uh, one of the great aspects of the sport is like you said at the beginning of the show, it's never the same thing um, as long as you get outside of your bubble. You know, if you continue to travel to other states and try different matches, um, 
you're always going to run into something new and you're going to have the ability to learn something new no matter where you go. So it's, you know, that's one of the things that I love most about this sport is it's not cookie cutter. No, it's not at all. And, and yeah, I mean, I, I think that you're doing yourself a disservice if you don't shoot in other states because almost the whole experience is different from place to place. Right. And how people approach the philosophies of shooting are different, the stage design, time constraints, and it, it tends to be the things that they value. But, you know, you're not from there, so this is maybe not what you value. And, and uh, heck yeah, man, that, that's why I want to shoot the ones in Idaho and Wyoming just to experience those, those new, new venues and, and kind of be challenged with things that I haven't seen before. And then continue to just kind of try to raise the bar um, for me. And and hopefully, you know, one of these years I'll be up there with, you know, those shooters that are consistently in the top. Well, um, this could be your year, my friend. You started off great with a, a title win uh, at Jacob's match, which is a very tough match. So I'm excited to see what you're able to accomplish this year. I'm so very proud of, of you from where you came from, your your beginnings to where you are today. And, man, I just uh, I can't wait to see what you do. It's going to be a fun year. Heck yeah, man. Well, thank you. I, I'm excited, too. I, I've been having a lot of fun, and I'm working hard now. Now that I've, you know, the year of kind of getting that perspective and making the notes, and now it's kind of t- time to actually put it to use and put in the training. So, you know, making that transition from uh, – the learning value of, of the matches to applying those lessons um, and taking the tra- you know, and, and then, and then uh, trying to optimize that training value of uh, those elements that just always seem to pop up. Yep. No, it's, it's, it's been great. Like I said, and you know, if you continue on this path and can keep your discipline and practice and continuous learning going on, there's there's nothing that's going to stop you but you. Yeah. Well, I, I hope that. I mean, I think there's honestly like I think that there's so much room for growth in shooters capabilities and and it would be really fun to kind of join a group of people that are willing to you know, see what they can do with these cuz I mean, you know, if you like my, I mean, honestly, like my performance at Rifles Only it was within my performance bubble, but it was, the, it was the lower half. So I was going in there. I was expecting to shoot a little bit better. Um, and, you know, my hit rate was about 70%. In, in training, my hit rate under simulated conditions is, you know, 84%. Recently, it's, it's kind of been more around 85%. Um, the, you know, there's things that you can't account for at every match, right. like, like I mentioned, by traveling around. But you know, if it's 70%, 75%, uh, the AG Cup was won with about a 75% hit rate. So, you know, we're, we're still talking about, you know, potentially 25% increase in shooter capability uh, from the top shooters, which if you think about, you know, if, if we raised the bar 10%, that would be incredibly difficult today, but not impossible down the road. I mean, um, Colton and those guys, like when, when, when he's my age, like it's going to be a whole other world. 
w w yeah, the people would have never imagined. Like, I, I, it's it's pretty exciting to think about um, a generation of shooters growing up and being able to be around and, and see shooters kind of raise that bar is pretty exciting to me. Oh, it is for sure. And I know that you and I are going to be around for that trip. It's going to be, you know, like I said, a fantastic year this year. The future is bright for for the sport. And all we can do is uh, keep putting it out there and growing it and having fun, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. We got to wrap it up. We're just about almost to an hour now. Um we will have to continue to talk because I feel like I'm cutting you off and there's still so much more to talk about. So hopefully we can schedule this again. Maybe we could do a, a little bit of a round table up in Wyoming or something of that nature. But Chris, yeah. I really, really, again, congratulations. I really appreciate your time on coming, coming onto the show today. Um, I wish you the best of luck with the rest of the season. Obviously I'm going to be watching closely and uh, it's just, it's exciting times, man. Congratulations. I'm very happy for you. Psyched, man. Thank you. Thank you. I'll see you in, in Wyoming. Yes, sir. And to all of our listeners, thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the show. Stay safe, keep shooting, and we'll see you all at the range. <laughs>